This is the Mark Dolan Way. Top tips for mind, body and soul, some great life hacks and my favourite products of the week. This show is available on all podcast platforms or you can watch it. Just subscribe to the Mark Dolan Way on YouTube and join the Facebook group. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the show. I hope you're very well. If something isn't working, change it. I used to work for the boss of a radio station, which was failing. It was a current affairs radio station. And he said, what I'm going to do, I'm going to change the topics that we talk about and I'm going to change some of the on-air talent. It became very successful. If he'd carried on with the old format, it would have just run into the ground, lost more listeners, lost more money. If it ain't working, change it. Human beings are afraid of change. We're programmed not to. That's the comfort zone. But you must grasp the nettle. Albert Einstein said the definition of madness, of insanity, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If something in your life is not working, a relationship, a work situation, a friendship, your health, your fitness, your diet, change it and you'll get results. So I hope you're very well. I hope you've had a good week. Lovely to see you and talk to you again. Um, I've been sorting out spectacles this week. Lots of glasses. I'm a glasses person. I've always loved being a glasses person. I actually was a teenager and didn't need glasses and was very sad that I wasn't somebody that had glasses. It's so annoying having this perfect 2020 vision because I'd really like to wear glasses. Don't know why I'm such a fan of glasses. But I am. Um, I think it's just this facial furniture, something on your face. It's a bit of decoration. Maybe it's a shield. Maybe it's something to hide behind. Maybe it's branding. But I just always liked spectacles. My uncle had these very, actually two uncles had very chunky spectacles. And it makes you a bit iconic for some reason. Glasses give you status. So uh, perhaps if you're looking to get ahead, want to be taken more seriously at work, Get yourself some glasses, maybe even glasses which have just a clear prescription in them, right? So no prescription at all, but you're still wearing glasses. Perhaps that will boost your confidence and get you taken seriously. I have a female friend who works in the field of academia, and she said that when she wears chunky black frames, she gets taken more seriously in this very sexist world in which we live. And when she's not wearing glasses, she's treated more like a lady and therefore subjected to outrageous, you know, prejudice, sexism, whatever you want to call it. Um, so she wants to be taken seriously. She wears chunky glasses. So why don't you try out a bit of spectacle wearing? I love it. I've got quite a few. I enjoy doing this podcast where I get to go through my entire collection. Unfortunately, I've got lots of frames which don't have up-to-date prescription lenses in and I need to get that done at some point and this is something I wanted to talk to you about because many of you listening to this probably have glasses. Now if you don't have glasses then apologies this will not be of interest to you. By the way if you do decide that you're going to get glasses which do not have a prescription in and they've just got a clear lens um, I recommend you you actually still send your glasses off and have a proper clear lens put in, which has got the anti-reflection coat, the anti-scratch, because they will just look better and they won't look like fake glasses. Now, if you are a glasses wearer, 
normally what you do, the process you go through <coughs> is that you go to the optician, you choose a frame and then they do an eye test and they send off the frame. They put the correct prescription lenses into those frames and then you collect them. And that is an expensive process. So you've got the eye test. Now, if you're lucky, it's free, but very often they cost 20 or 30 pounds and you need to do it every two years. The reason why you should do it every two years is because your eyes change gradually. And also when you go to the optician, they can check the health of your eyes, which is really good. So that's one of the advantages of being somebody that needs glasses is you get your eyes tested for health, which people that don't need glasses do not. And they can spot all sorts of health symptoms. They can tell if you've got circulation issues, high cholesterol, lots of things like that can be flagged up in the eyes, bloodshot eyes. Uh, it, the white of the eye becomes quite yellow. Does that suggest there's a liver or a kidney issue going on? Um, severe alcoholics get very yellow eyes, of course. So the eyes are an amazing diagnostic tool. And um, it's handy. So actually, even if your eyesight, even if you think your eyesight is fine, why do you go and get an eye test? A, so that you can get the health of your eyes checked. And secondly, because it turns out you may be short or long-sighted without realising it. My lovely mother-in-law has not had glasses for years and it turns out she's very short-sighted, but she's just lived her life in a kind of cloudy haze. And I have to say, when she got the glasses, which had the correct prescription in, she was so excited, like a blind person being given vision again, although it was so potent and so sharp that it made her slightly dizzy because she was trying to acclimatise. But um, so you go off to the optician and you get your eye test. Now, I'm a big fan of saving you money and I love life hacks. There is no cheap way of doing an eye test. You can't be done at home. You can't get your mate to do it. You need a professional. So that is a cost that is impossible to avoid. Um, I have an opticians nearby and they were handing out free eye test vouchers a while ago and I took advantage. Um, but you'll be paying, if you have to pay, you'll be paying, as I say, 20, 25, 30 pounds. Perhaps go on the internet and look for free eye tests. Something may come up. But either way, it's money well spent if you do have to pay for it. But that is where your costs come to an end, because what I'm going to recommend to you, especially if you're on a budget, is I'm going to recommend that you do not bother getting your glasses from an optician. And the reason why is because you pay a markup for the frame and you pay a markup for the glazing. The glazing is putting the lens in. So very often you'll see a pair of glasses that you like and they will be Perhaps the frames could be 100, 150, 200 pounds. And then the glazing will cost you another 150. So that takes us to imagine if you'd found a really posh pair of glasses. Let's say they were they were uh, 250 Well, with the lenses and everything. That's 400 pounds. That's a huge amount of money, isn't it? That's a huge amount of money. So what I want you to do is I want you to do one of two things, actually. First of all, source the frame yourself. So, for example, if you see a frame that you like at the opticians and you can't get it anywhere else, just say, I would like to buy the frame only, please. I don't want you to put the glazing in. Just give me the frame only. 
and they can just sell you the frame. And I do that all the time. So my lovely other half lost her glasses and I went online to get the replacement frame and we just bought the frame for £75, which is brilliant, isn't it? So you can either go to the optician and get the, or you can go online and just buy, if there's a certain frame you like, you can just search via eBay or any number of other websites, especially if there's a model, if you see a model of spectacle that you like, just Google it, purchase it directly, and then you're going to get it reglazed. So what that means is you're going to get the, you're going to get lenses put in your glasses and you simply go on the internet. And you just Google reglaze my glasses, right? Reglaze, R-E-G-L-A-Z-E. And I just did that earlier today in preparation for this show. And I found a deal where they could put new lenses into my existing frames for £27 for the pair. And that would be anti-scratch anti-reflection you need that by the way you must get the anti-reflection anti-scratch coating otherwise the lens looks very cheap and the light bounces off it in a very distracting and unattractive way so 27 quid for the pair isn't that brilliant value i saw another quote for 30 another quote for 35 and all you do they don't care about the frame you just send them the frame that you've got They'll slam the lenses in and then they'll be sent by return of post. You'll have them within five days. But here's the crucial thing. They need your prescription. So what you have to do is you have to, when you get your sight test, you have to ask them for a copy of your prescription because sometimes the opticians, they're quite clever and they sort of hang on to your op, uh, to your uh, prescription. They, they sort of hoard it because, of course, that's where they get their power from because they're the ones that are in possession of your prescription. So if you need glasses, you've got to do it through them. Well, you don't. You've paid for that prescription. Even if it was free, it still belongs to you. That's like your medical record. So when you get your eyes tested, I'm going to ask you, you've got to get them to email you your full prescription or send you uh, a PDF of it or a printout. Printout is probably the best, but that's what I want you to do. So you must have a copy of it because then what you do when you send your glasses off to the, the various online places that reglaze and um, they will need a copy of your prescription. But there's one other thing. There's one other little catch. And this is how the opticians get you is that very often on the prescription, it does not say your pupillary distance, the PD. And the pupillary distance is basically the distance between the two black dots in the center of your eyes. Full disclosure, I think my PD is 62. I think the average is about 60. So if you had to guess and you were desperate, I don't recommend this, but if you were desperate, you could just essentially 60 would cover most people. If it's a weak prescription, it doesn't really matter. But no, look, you, you should get your PD checked but anyway that's part of the prescription is the pupillary distance um and on a good sight test it'll be there but it also may not be and i remember i needed my glasses reglazed once and i had the prescription but not the pd and the people said we, we can't do it without the pd so when you're getting your eyes tested if the prescription does not say the pupillary distance on it just ask them say oh, by the way could you tell me my pupillary distance and the big thing is it never changes right so mine is 62 forever and that's it and you send it off and you get your glasses and it will save you an absolute fortune so just imagine right i can get i can get a couple of glasses 
with brand new lenses put in for £27 times two. Less than 60 quid. The other great thing about this is you can go through your collection of old frames. Maybe there's a pair of sunglasses that you've fallen out of love with and you can use that frame as a pair of normal glasses. And of course, the other great thing is that these companies will do you a prescription tint, probably for about another 10 or 15 quid. So you can get prescription lenses put in for perhaps 40 or 50 pounds. So infinitely cheaper than an optician. The optician's going to charge you, they could charge you 175 200 maybe maybe not that much maybe 150 again for the tinted lenses but um, a lot of cash so there you go um, it's very much a theme of this show is about finding workarounds cutting out the middleman the opticians you know their job is to mark everything up so there's a markup on the frame and there's a markup on the glazing so if you send your glasses off to be glazed directly there's no markup. You're getting a wholesale price, basically. It's spectacular. And by the way, if you were in Hong Kong or Singapore, you could get your glasses done for a tenner. But we're not in Hong Kong and we're not in Singapore, are we? Yeah, there you go. I think, does that cover the glasses thing? I think so. But yeah, I like them. I like them. Buddy Holly, the famous singer, insisted on wearing glasses. And the record company said, listen, you can't wear glasses. It's not glamorous. This was like the late 50s, I think it was, when he was around before his very sad car, uh, train crash, plane crash, plane crash. He crashed in the plane. Um, but but he did That'll Be The Day and lots of other hits. And he needed glasses. And they said, no, get rid of the glasses because you don't look like a pop star. And he insisted. He stood his ground and he became an icon. And in a way, those glasses be became his thing, his little, his little light motif, his little branding his trademark. In fact, so much so that a young John Lennon used to wear very similar Buddy Holly style glasses because he hero worshipped Buddy Holly so much. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was told to change his name to Arnold Strong because they said Schwarzenegger, that's a long, annoying German word. It won't look good on a movie poster. Well, he kind of proved them wrong, didn't he? So sometimes in life, stand your ground. If someone's trying to get you to change something about yourself that you actually like and you think reflects your identity, then just ignore them and do your own thing. Just say, no, thank you for your feedback, but I'm going to continue wearing these red shoes or have this strange haircut or this type of glasses. And it's going to be your thing. In fact, express yourself as much as you can in your clothes, with your hairstyle. I'm not a tattoo person, but if you want to get a tattoo, by all means, really good to express yourself. I really enjoy my clothes. I like waking up in the morning and deciding what I'm going to wear, what mood I'm in. It reflects my mood. Can I apologise? Today, I am presenting the show, if you're watching on YouTube, in a puffer jacket. And the reason why is because it's bloody freezing and I haven't turned the heater on yet. It's November the 1st. Happy November, one and all. Oh, I've just revealed the data of the recording. This will, this will go out a few days later, won't it? It'll be, it'll be something like the 5th of November when this goes out. But it is technically the 1st right now. And I've not yet had the heater on. 
And my idea is to wear a puffer jacket indoors. And so far, so good. I've had to put my extra warm jump on under, a jumper on underneath. But I hope you don't mind me wearing this. Some people don't like it because it makes it look like you're about to leave or run off or something because you're wearing your coat indoors. It looks like you're leaving. But I'm very comfortable. And this jacket I purchased in a charity shop. It's a red Uniqlo jacket. It's a down jacket. And it was about 10 sizes too big for me in the charity shop. It was XXL. And I took it to my lady and she altered it. So the jacket probably cost me maybe £12. And then the alteration cost me 20 which I know is a lot. But this is a down jacket. And when she cuts it open, feathers fly around. It's a bit of a specific job. So, yeah, the whole thing has cost me £32. That'd be right. Yeah, about that. Not bad. Wear it every day. Love it. So don't forget that tip. You find an item of clothing that doesn't fit you, but it's very cheap. Buy it anyway and have it altered because as long as it's too big, somebody can always make it smaller. I've been enjoying a book by this week, Dan Carter, and he is a famous All Blacks rugby player. And his book is called The Art of Winning which I would highly recommend. There's no way I can do it justice in this podcast. So do run out and get yourself a copy if you've got time. I'm listening to the audio book of it, but I'm actually going to have to sit down and listen to it and then write notes from it because I don't have the book. And, you know, I could almost, I could almost justify getting the book as well, just so I've listened to it and then I can make notes on the thing. But I feel that would be a bit extravagant. I did that many years ago. I was given a copy of Sir Alex Ferguson's autobiography one Christmas and I was very happy. So during the day I would read the hard copy, this lovely big hardback book. And then in bed at night with my other half, I would not disturb her. So then I purchased a Kindle version. So I actually had two copies. I was reading it on the Kindle at night and reading it via a physical book during the day. It felt very opulent, very decadent, but it gave me a lot of pleasure. But this book, so I'm tempted. I don't know. Let's see how good it goes. If it's really that great, I might buy a hard copy because like I said to you before, it's really good to go back to valuable messaging that you've heard in the past, because unfortunately we don't retain wisdom. That's why religious people pray every day. That's why Christians read the Bible every day, or at least, you know, most religions, people, they worship every week and it's like that weekly renewal and the priest or the uh the rabbi or, or the um the pastor the i'm trying to think of all the different titles of faith leaders what else do you have um but basically that is a lovely thing because they go back and they re it's like renewing the vows and the 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 the, the preacher always kind of repeats the message every week which is be a good person and pray to god and all that stuff so you know it's all but you know you have to go back you have to revise it endlessly it's an unending work in progress and uh, i'm tempted if i did if this book is really good by dan carter i might buy a hard copy and then i it means i can dip into it every so often the problem with an audiobook is you can't flick through it it's not a visual medium but we'll see. It would have to be good enough. But I think it, I think it's a contender, I've got to say. And one of the things that he talks about is preparation. Now, I know that's obvious, isn't it? You've got to prepare because then you'll be successful. 
But he actually said that when he's getting stressed out and worried about his performance, worried that maybe he's not on good form, it's rugby, so he feels like he's, you know, not scoring enough tries or something. I don't, I don't fully understand rugby, to be honest with you. I find that rugby players look like footballers that had a rough birth because the nose is always like sort of bent out of shape. And I gave up rugby once when a friend of mine was playing rugby and he, he was wrapping gaffer tape around his head so that his ears could be like taped, taped down and protected. And I thought, I don't want to do a sport where you need to use tape to hold your ears down. I feel that uh, we've crossed a line there. I would call that the tape test where if the sport involves taping down any bits of your body. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I don't think so. No strapping, no taping, please. The idea that you could lose your ears. Oh my God. Are we going to do that? And then you've got this thing called a scrum where they sort of bend over and you've got to push your face into in between someone else's legs and you don't even know them very well. You've not had a drink. They might not be your type ridiculous it's a ridiculous sport rugby a lot of standing around a lot of shouting and then sort of just one guy runs and then he falls over and, and he's got to push the ball onto the ground it's not even a ball it's oval shaped, which means it doesn't roll properly what the hell were they thinking rugby's a disaster it's an absolute disaster what i don't like about it no disrespect to those that play it by the way of course not but what i don't understand or what i don't like about it is that you can't just switch it on on TV or go to a match and know what's happening. You can't. Whereas with football, you can. It takes four seconds, doesn't it, to explain football, which is two teams each trying to get the ball in the other nets. The end. How long did that take? That took five seconds maximum. That's why it's a great, great. That's why it's a great sport, football. Um, in America, in Hollywood, they have something called an elevator pitch. And that means that if you're selling your idea for a movie you ought to be able to convey that idea in the course of a trip on the elevator. So let's imagine you you get into the elevator with a studio boss. You're on the ground floor and you're going to go to the 11th floor. So you've got 11 floors in which to sell your idea. And that's what the elevator pitch is. And then when the elevator doors open, the pitch is done. And um, my favourite example of an elevator pitch which I may have quoted before, and apologies if I have, but Jaws was very successful. So Jaws, Steven Spielberg movie, involves a resort where there is a shark and it's killing lots of people. And it's called, well, the the, the film's called, called Jaws. I can't remember the name of the, the uh, holiday resort now. It'll come back to me. But very dramatic, very good film. People go swimming. And then a child screams and then the water turns red. Someone else has died. And I think the story behind it, one element of it, because it's been years since I watched it, is that the mayor is very in denial of what's happening. He doesn't act quickly enough. Perhaps he's slightly corrupt. So there's a bit of politics in there as well. But it's very much about how I think the authorities ignore things when, when you know, until they get really bad. So, yeah, it was a very spooky film. And you watch people swimming and you think, oh, I know Jaws is going to come and kill them now. So that was fine. So it's a gigantic hit. It was very original. And that first weekend, I think, when it was released, people were queuing around the block to see it. 
And audiences were screaming because they'd never seen such a terrifying film before. It was an absolute phenomenon. And it was a cultural moment. When would it have been? I guess the mid 80s. Jaws. It remains iconic. It really does. So that's fine. And the elevator pitch, there was a <laughs> there was a movie and I can't quite remember what it was called, but it was something like Fang or Killer Dogs. Yeah, maybe it's called Killer Dogs. It's in, I think the story features in a book called Raging Bulls, Easy Tigers, which is a film about independent cinema in the 70s and 80s. Shall I look it up quickly? Come on then. Why don't I quickly look it up? We have the internet for goodness sakes. Hello, hello. Yes, just make sure I don't switch my microphone off. Um, no, I would. I, I don't recommend too many... Well, I do recommend a book every week, but I don't recommend normally outside of self-help books. I don't normally recommend books for other reading, do I? But this one is um, Raging Bulls. Oh, see, I'm glad I checked because I just gave you the title completely wrong. It's called Easy Riders Raging Bulls and it's by Peter Biskind. Yeah, and it's... Um, all about movies, the making of movies like The Godfather, The French Connection, Chinatown, Taxi Driver, Jaws, Star Wars, The Exorcist, Exorcist and The Last Picture Show. Picture show. It is called Easy Riders Raging Bulls. Just very entertaining book. Uh, the background to the book is that in the 1940s and 50s, the studios got very rich because they were making these musicals and they were very cheesy and it was singing and dancing, it was a love story and ball gowns and champagne and caviar and all that stuff, right? So they just churned out, I think particularly the 50s, probably because after the war, everything was very doom and gloom, you know, it was sort of the, the tail end of, of austerity and of rationing. The world was recovering from war, from a war that ravaged the world and which saw a loss of life. Countries were financially broke and ruined and everything. So anyway, it seems like people went to the cinema for escapist fun, for glamour, all the things that perhaps they didn't have. So that was a big deal. But then what happened is that going into the 60s and then the lakes into the 70s no one wanted these cheesy musicals anymore in the 70s it was all kind of like gritty urban drama and the studios were going bankrupt because no one was going to see their ridiculous musicals and sort of also kind of crappy comedies cheesy comedies People wanted something more authentic, edgier, more authored. They wanted a compelling story. They wanted it to be more like real life. So that's when Francis Ford Coppola came along and he made The Godfather, which was very gritty. And people like Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese, the film director, Taxi Driver, all those films became dominant. And what happened is the studios because they were in so much trouble and they were so broke, they had to let these talented young producers and directors make a different kind of movie, independent film. So what 
a big studio like MGM would do is just say to Francis Ford Coppola, here's here's a bunch of millions just go and make a film please that you think is a good film and and hopefully that will be successful because their own the in-house formula from the studios wasn't working anymore so it was really a golden era of independent filmmaking which meant a lot of creativity we didn't see a kind of burst of creativity like that again until the arrival of HBO and then Netflix. But HBO were the originators of this because HBO were behind The Sopranos. And what they did is they let producers just make the films that they wanted to uh, make. So rather than management and the studio execs being in control, you give control, you give the budget to the creative people, to the talented people who have a track record. And you say, right, you know what you're doing. You're a genius. Here's a load of money. Just go and make me something. So that's what happened in Hollywood in the 70s into a little bit into the 80s but then unfortunately the the studios took control again but then we saw it in tv in the 2000s with hbo and then netflix and now they all do it you know amazon prime apple they find talented creative people and they give them money and they say go and make me a show and it's very good it's always good when the artist is in control Look at shows like The Office, the original British version of The Office, created by and starring Ricky Gervais. His big thing was that he wanted full control of the product. So he got notes from the BBC, which he ignored. And he was willing to walk away from the project if he couldn't have his vision of it, which is why it was so bloody good. Because, you know, you'll have watched TV comedies that clearly look like they've been created by a committee. And that's probably most comedies on TV, isn't it? But when you get somebody with an original voice like that and they're uncompromising, the same with Larry David. Now, when Larry David, who's the co-creator of Seinfeld alongside Jerry Seinfeld, when he was doing those first couple of early pilots, the first tryout episodes of the show, he refused to accept notes from the, from the studio, which they found very annoying. But he said, I don't agree with your notes and I'm not going to listen to them anymore. And I think you're wrong. And he made a judgment, which is, look, if they fire me, they fire me. He said, uh, my old life as a comedian wasn't that bad. I had a small flat. I was quite content. So if I have to, I'll, I'll live without this extra money. And I will just, um, I'll just go back to square one. But he just wouldn't compromise. And that means that Seinfeld wound up being a very quirky, very original show. And I've got to say, from my own experience in TV, the less interference from senior management, the better. It depends, doesn't it? There, there are some great managers out there, but I'm afraid there are a few people who are just there to justify their job. And what you have to do is exist with those people and humour them, but try, where possible, to completely ignore them. I've had some horrible notes from the you know the channel the the commissioning editors of channels who have willfully destroyed programs with terrible ideas oh my god you've got no idea i could tell you a million stories so yeah so i think and it's true by the way the same for you whatever industry you're in whatever you do if you can have as much control as possible of what you're doing it will be more successful if i was a boss and i would like to be a boss at some point because I'd like to have a business where a creative business where I've got people under me who I can challenge and improve and stimulate and also 
I like the idea of having a business, a venture which enriches all involved, both financially, spiritually and creatively. That's what I would like to do and will eventually. Because I see good management and what it can do and I see bad management and what it can do. Most bad management is when people are not appreciated, not invested in, not supported and left to basically rot. And I've worked for companies where brilliant people are just allowed to leave. Why would you let brilliant people leave? If you're allowing good people to leave, you have a failing business. What you should be doing is chucking out bad people and love bombing the good people who bring value to the enterprise. But um, how did we get on? How on earth did we get on to that? Oh, yeah. What I would do is if I was a boss, I would empower people. So I just say, right, Jim, you're in the accounts department and this is your this is totally your domain. And I want you to choose your own space in the office and decorate it how you want. And hey, I'm going to let you recruit your own people. So here's a budget for staff. You're like head of department, senior vice president, accounts department. Do you know what I mean? Just empower people. So if you're at work, if you're in any way able to empower people, I've got a team around me and I try to empower them. And I say, right, Stephanie, you're, um, I want you to do this and just own it. And sometimes I say, I'm not even going to check it. I just, I trust you. I, I want you just to own this. And by saying, I'm not going to check it, that's total trust. And then Stephanie's got this responsibility, but she's also, she feels very valued because I've given her this responsibility. I've demonstrated trust. It's a huge investment. It's a beautiful thing. And the messaging is great. So this guy, Dan Carter, The Art of Winning, he was a very good All Blacks rugby player. That's all I know. He struggled to retire. I think there'll be a bit of Dan Carter popping up over the next few weeks because I feel that this guy's good. What I like about it, I like self-help books that haven't been written by a journalist or, or even somebody with a sort of slightly crappy psychology degree or something. I like self-help books that come from someone that's either lived the experience or is a proper medic. So why I love the chimp paradox is because Professor Steve Peters is a psychiatrist. So that is his actual science we've got in that book. And why I like Dan Carter's book is because he's an actual rugby player that's won everything you can hope to win. And it's based upon his approach and his mindset. So he says that if you're worried about your work situation, let's say that you're underperforming or you're under pressure or the boss isn't happy, or let's imagine it's professional sport and you're not scoring, you're not scoring for the team. There's a lot of stuff in your head, a lot of anxiety. He says, concentrate on preparation. So let's imagine you've got a big company report to deliver and you're anxious about it and you're worried you're going to mess it up and you're worried it's not good enough and you're not going to deliver it right. And there's too much competition. There's other people who have got better ideas and all that negativity. Forget about that. Just block all of that out. Just prepare. So just put the work in. So he talks about that when he's got a big match on Saturday and he's anxious. He's like, do you know what? Monday morning, arrive on time for training work hard with the training, have lunch, go back, more training, train in the evening and just get yourself, just prepare. 
just do the preparatory work. And he said that will boost your confidence. It will take your mind off the actual anxiety of what's coming up. And I have a similar story from a military guy, sort of a soldier type that I interviewed once. And I asked him about sort of the anxiety of going to war. Because imagine you're at home and you tell your family, right, I've been I've been called up to go to a war zone. I mean, that's nerve wracking, isn't it? Wouldn't you say that's a bit nerve wracking? The knowledge you're going to fly out to a war torn territory where you may lose your life. That's not very fun, is it? And what do you do with those emotions? Where do you put those emotions when they're floating around inside your head, which are not unreasonable emotions? And he said what he does is he gets his kit together. He prepares his kit, right? So he gets his bag out and he goes through. He's like, right, I need my trousers. I need my socks. I need my compass. I don't know. I need a... What, what, what technology do these people use? I don't know if they, they'd be... Yeah, I guess, you know, they get their, their gun ready. Bloody hell. Oiling, oiling the gun, sharpening the knives, polishing the bayonet. But this guy just said that he prepares his kit and gets everything ready. And that somehow relaxes him and he feels more comfortable. And I think that's very good, very good advice. Um, I remember I used to get really anxious before exams or even before a big assignment, let's say an essay at school. And it would be sitting there causing me great anxiety and I'd be watching TV. And even though I'm watching TV, I've got this terrible feeling in the back of my mind about this thing that's hanging over me. And it becomes a bit of a monster. So what I used to do is, in order to get rid of that feeling, I'd open the books and I'd say, right, I'm not doing the essay. Let's say it was an essay. I'm not doing the essay tonight, but I'm just going to have a look at what's involved. You open the book and you look through some of the notes and you can see how many words you've got to write and you just... You confront it by looking and in, in a way what you've done there is you've you've began you've begun prep preparing your preparation has begun because you're just looking through stuff and it doesn't become such an abstract monster in your mind maybe you take a couple of notes you go right tomorrow here's where i'm going to start i'll start with an introduction and i'll introduce that bit and you begin to like navigate your way through the material and you're like okay it's not as bad as i thought and then the next day you wake up early and you go 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 how many times has there been a task that you've dreaded, but when you finally got round to it, it was actually fine or even enjoyable? Has that ever happened to you? I've even had that with tax returns where I just put it off for months on end. And then it's just so late in the day. Maybe I've actually, maybe it's late. I've missed the deadline, right? I'm going to pay a penalty and oh my God, all sorts of other problems, right? And yet when I start doing it, I'm like, this wasn't that bad. I almost quite enjoyed doing my tax return. So why did I put it off so much? And it's because I was afraid of it. I didn't go near it. It had control over me. And if I had just done what Dan Carter recommends and my military friend, which is just start to prepare, just to, you know, to scratch the surface of it, have a look at what's involved. So, you know, if it was a tax return, just open it and just start reading it and then just grab a couple of invoices you're like, all right, well, I need those invoices and, da, da, da. and you've 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 confronted it and already it becomes less of a monster. So, yeah, that's how you unlock things. Begin to prepare them. OK, preparation. That is it. Because it's true for an athlete, for example, that this rugby player, he's really good, not because of the matches, 
It's what he does between the matches, isn't it? It's the training day in and day out. Speaking of Sir Alex Ferguson, by the way, what I should do is I should read his book again, shouldn't I? Share his wisdom about the world with you because he was an amazing leader who was the Manchester United manager for many decades, winning scores of trophies with different teams within one club, but various generation of footballers he brought to the top. So he did it more than once. Sometimes a manager can get lucky with one particular squad, but Ferguson would have a squad and then he'd get rid of them. They were getting old. He'd refresh, he'd renew. And he did it over and over again. And that was amazing. An amazing guy. Big fan. Um, one thing that he used to talk to his team about is he wasn't that focused. I mean, yes, a lot of gathering information about, about the opposition, about the other team. But he used to say, there's 11 of you. Each of you do your job, right? You know what your job is. He, he said, my job, I'm the manager. My job is for you to know what your job is, right? I've got to ensure you know what your job is. So the defender, you're, you're going to defend. You're going to hang on to the ball. You're going to stop it going into the goal. <laughs> you're going to keep it away from the goalkeeper and you're going to do your job. And if all 11 of you are doing each of your jobs properly, you concentrate on your job, you do that well, we will prevail. And that was his argument. And therefore, he didn't like the team to focus too much on the other team too much. His attitude was, we have got to deliver a great performance. So if we perform well, if we play good football, we enjoy our football, we play our football well, and we each do our jobs, we will succeed. Rather than an excessive focus on the other team, which gives them power. So sometimes he would actually be quite positive with the team, even if they lost the game, because he would say to them, um, you lost the game, but you did everything I needed you to do. You, you did your jobs and it was a good performance. And so if you continue with that discipline and that good performance, you'll win. So he was so focused on just a good performance rather than thinking about the conditions, thinking about the opposition, thinking about the weather, thinking about the crowd. Have you done a good job? So let's imagine you're at a company that's failing and it's losing money and there's all sorts of crises going on around you. It's a complete disaster, right? Well, if you are in the sales department, then you just concentrate on what you're doing. You get those sales up. Don't worry about the others. And I've made that mistake in the past where I've somehow got involved. I've been working with someone, working in a team, and I'm have got opinions about other members of the team and things that my colleagues are doing. It's like, no, no, no. Don't do that. Just I got to concentrate on me being great. I'll do my thing really well and focus all my energies on on that. Don't try to fix other things. I'm not the boss. I'm not the CEO. That's their job to worry about all departments. I'm going to think about that. So if you're a footballer, you shouldn't care about how well the physio is doing his job or not doing his job or the kit person or the dinner ladies or whatever you like. Right. You just you're there to play football and score goals. So you do that and let the others. Woody Allen, when he got his agent, he was all sort of, you know, very confused about what to do and how to pursue his career and who to talk to. And his agents gave him great advice. They said, listen, you you do the work. You just write your comedy and perform and you you just churn out the material and we 
will look after the rest. We'll worry about everything else. You are the goose that lays the golden eggs. So lay those eggs. You churn out the work. We will do the rest. So remember that. Remember your job. Concentrate on that. Make that your focus. And you will prevail. Gut instinct is a really good thing. Follow your gut. It's there for a reason. No one even knows to this day what a gut instinct is. But it's been placed in you as a survival mechanism. So that when you're walking through the woods and you hear a rustling in the background or even see a creature that you don't recognise, your gut instinct says, I think that thing wants to kill me. And you're going to run and it keeps you alive. But you have a gut instinct in so many aspects of your life. When you meet someone, a potential friend, a potential partner, a potential job, a potential colleague, your gut will tell you whether they're going to be good or bad. And you should follow your gut, follow your feeling, follow your instinct. Same with house hunting, right? You might go to a house or an apartment and it ticks all the boxes. It's exactly what you require. But then you go to another place which does not tick the boxes. It's unsatisfactory, but for some reason you just love it. And your gut says, I just, I want to, I want to live at the place which does not tick the boxes, you know. So let's imagine you need, you need a garage. You're looking for a, a big garden and you want to be near the train station and you find a house which has no garage, a tiny garden, and it's not near the train station. But when you're in there, you have this lovely warm feeling. It just is a glow. It just makes you feel good being in that building. And your gut says, this is the one. Then just bloody go and do it. Follow your gut, buy the wrong house because your gut told you to. Your gut is very rarely wrong. And what you want to do is build a relationship with your gut so that, because I think we, we sort of live in a world now where we're just, the poor old gut is drowned out by everything else in our life, the smartphone. We spend our whole lives glued to devices. We don't have to have a single sec second where we're not being stimulated or entertained, but that stops us listening to the gut. So a bit of time without technology, without the internet, without social media, without your phone, without your TV or radio, or even without music. Just let yourself be still and you'll start to feel that gut instinct, which is this little creature who communicates with you, who's got your best interests at heart. And the gut instinct is, is a genius, really. It's almost like a psychic. It's like a little wizard. Because a gut is not based on fact, is it? It's just a feeling you've got. But it's a superpower if you can harness it and listen to it. So why don't you spend a week trying to follow your gut instinct? I'd really recommend that. Um, and what was I going to say about the gut instinct and that? Yeah, uh, Elton John, there's always time for an Elton John story. He remains a perennial theme of this podcast because he remains my hero. And he... He had this guy called Davy Johnstone who came and played guitar on on um, one of the early albums. I believe it was Madman Across the Water. Very talented guy, a folk, a folk guitarist. And Davy Johnston had never picked up an electric guitar in his life. But anyway, so um, he pl plays a guitar on on the Madman album, including on Tiny Dancer, which I believe went on to become quite a hit. And uh, he's only just done a couple of songs with the band, right? And Elton has decided 
that he's going to invite Davy Johnstone to join the band, right? To join them on tour and to become an official member of the Elton John band. But the thing is, this guy, he's, he's a folk, he's a folk guitarist. He plays like the, the acoustic guitar. And his bandmates, Elton's bandmates are like, are you mad? He's not an electric guitarist. He hasn't, you know. So it turns out Davy Johnstone had, had never really picked up an electric guitar. But Elton's like, I know, but um, I think he'll be fine. I think he'll be good with an electric guitar. I think he should be in the band. And he will be the lead guitarist and he'll play an electric guitar, even though he's never played. So Elton John employs someone to play the electric guitar in his massive band that hasn't played electric guitar before. David Johnson turned out to be amazing. So he came up with that riff at the beginning of Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. <laughs> and um, the amazing bit in the middle of I'm Still Standing, where it goes... Amazing, right? When you get a chance, have a listen to I'm Still Standing. Have a listen to the guitar bit in the middle. And that's Davy Johnstone, who'd never picked up an electric guitar before. And Elton hires him in the band. Now, what was Elton doing? He was following his gut. First of all, he'd, he'd watched the great skill of Davy Johnstone on the regular acoustic guitar. He's made a mental calculation, which is, well, if you can do that with an acoustic guitar... You can translate that to an electric guitar. This guy is very talented. He probably liked his company. He liked his vibe. He thought I could go on the road with this guy. He's a pretty low-key, unobtrusive personality. But he just made a decision which seemed a little odd. But it was a gut feeling he had and he was proved right. Davy Johnstone has been with Elton John now for 50 years. And they closed out the tour together. And if you watch that Glastonbury set, which you can see on YouTube, if you watch Rocket Man, the relationship between Elton and Davy Johnstone in that song, especially towards the end when Elton's on the piano and he's looking over at Davy and Davy's got the guitar and Elton's got the piano. It's very quiet. It's very intimate. You wouldn't know that there were 120,000 people in the crowd watching. You wouldn't know that there were millions watching at home. But um, yeah. It's just that gut feeling. Other other times in Elton's life when he's broken up the band, even though it was doing very well, or changed producer, or had a break from his lyricist, um, none of it made sense. All of it was like, what are you doing? You're mad. But that was a gut instinct. It was a feeling he had that it was time to move on. And if you look at his stellar career, I think he's been proved right. But you've you've got that too. You've got the same gut instinct in you. And your job this week is to try to make an effort to listen to it. Uh, listen, uh, it's time to go. It's been lovely chatting with you. It's going to be really busy podcast wise because I'm actually going to be churning a few out back to back so that they're all ready for you. Because I never want a week to go by where you don't get a podcast. That's my that's my firm commitment to you. So I'll probably be back in the studio tomorrow and again a day or two after that. Um, so therefore, in future episodes we'll be talking about uh, how to cook meats a special trick for prawns uh, fixing things shoes asking for help and why that's important the joy of hiking boots 
and much, much more. So I've got I've got some real gold coming up. I'm also going to bring you some more pearls of wisdom from Dan Carter and the art of winning. Also, I should conclude the review of the Arnold Schwarzenegger book as well, which is an absolute gem. Um, but I'll leave you with this. It's getting cold. And can I just tell you that I have tried every type of glove in my life to stay warm. And I speak with authority because I ride a motorbike. Well, it's a moped. It's a one, two, five little motorbike thing. And for years, I have tried different sort of gloves. Now, when you're on a motorbike and you're riding along, especially quite fast, 60, 70 miles an hour, and it's really cold and it's wet, your fingers and knuckles are exposed. So even if you're wearing thick gloves, your fingers still get cold. You shouldn't let your fingers get cold for a sustained period of time because when you're older, you could then get arthritis and things like that. So it's important to keep your your hands warm in the winter. But I found that it didn't matter how much I spent on gloves and how thick they got, my fingers would always eventually get cold. And one day I went and I bought mittens. And it was astonishing because although the mittens are not as thick as the actual expensive thick gloves I was using my fingers never got cold in them and that's because the fingers are next to each other they keep each other warm because they're sort of physically together inside the mitten and I think you also have this sort of pocket of warm air within the mitten because it's just one whole space that your hand fits inside and then of course if you think about the wind blowing against the mitten it's blowing against a flat surface area rather than four individual fingers so there isn't that same exposed space that exposed area but anyway i've tried everything to keep my hands warm and mittens are absolutely brilliant and i've done the same thing with skiing so your hands get very cold when you're skiing especially when you're sat on that lift and the mittens are sensational and you can get all different thickness of mittens. I don't think they need to be that thick. I think that the physicality of them and how they work, the engineering of a mitten means that they're almost all of them are actually warm. But I like to have a pair of Gore-Tex or very thoroughly waterproof mittens with a nice, lovely, warm, fleecy finish inside. But I absolutely love mittens. I don't mean those woolly mittens which just let cold air through. I'm talking about proper mittens, waterproof gloves, but in a mitten format, highly recommended, absolute game changer. So this, this winter, can I recommend that you try mittens? You will never look back. Thank you for listening to the show. It's been a delight to have your company. I was actually in something of a thunderous mood before I came on air. Uh, I was gloomy. You could say depressed. And remember my advice about that. Obviously, if it's serious, go and see your doctor. Very important. And also ask for help. But if there's just a doom and a gloom, uh, make sure you're eating good food, you're getting exercise, you're getting sleep and that you are drug free. And that will really help. But I've done all those things. You know, I don't take drugs anyway. Not a heavy drinker. Been getting sleep, but still just sad and gloomy. The weather's been terrible. And uh, what I did is I just uh, I just thought I am sad. I am gloomy. And that is a fact. And that is it. And when that happens, if you can, you just let it wash through you. Just just be sad. Because nothing, nothing good is forever, but nothing bad is forever, too. And that feeling will pass. And by f having that sadness and being sad. 
and just sitting it out and existing with it, it sort of shifts. And it's almost, it's not unhealthy in a weird way. And obviously a way to pull yourself through is positive thoughts and positive messaging. And you can even write down what's, what's, what there is to be positive about and that will help you as well. And of course, if there are problems, then it's a case of addressing those and starting to tackle those. But um, but yeah, so therefore, but it's interesting, isn't it? But by the end of this podcast now, you've put me in a good mood because I think it's brought me out of myself. I've spoken now for 55 minutes and I feel um, happier and I've done something. I've been productive. Um, hopefully it's been helpful to you, but it's been massively helpful to me. So... I suppose if you're feeling gloomy, um, if you have a bit of momentum, get busy. Something Dan Carter talks about, which I mentioned from the Schwarzenegger book. I like it when books agree with each other, by the way, because the there are many sort of universal truths, which is why I almost have a sort of acid test of a certain book. If it, if it contains themes from books that I've already read, which I really appreciate and really like, I'm like, oh, this is good. So Schwarzenegger and Dan Carter both say that you should go for small, easy to achieve goals because it builds self-confidence and creates momentum. So today, why don't you give yourself a couple of really easy, why don't you have three really easy achievable goals that you can do today? If it's late at night, then tomorrow. Okay, I'll, I'll forgive you that. But if it's if you're listening to this in the morning, try to do three things today or three things tomorrow. Maybe three things every day. How about that? Between now and when we next meet, why don't you do three easy to achieve things? Write it down. And that could be, it's a language. So like, okay, I'm going to learn 10 words of the new language, or I'm going to tidy up the living room, or I'm going to uh, text the people who have been waiting to hear from me about something, right? But really easy goals. Now that email you've been putting off, just get it done, right? job done and then what happens is that it's very satisfying and you get adrenaline you get a reward and you get self-confidence and then doing things becomes a buzz like a drug and then you'll want to do more things because you'll want more of that drug so I suppose doing this podcast today that wasn't that was an easily achievable goal right which is to to do the podcast and now I feel good having done it so I think what I'll do is I'll do two more things today which are easily achievable and that'll make me feel good and I'll do the same tomorrow. And I hope you will as well. So let's do this together. Can't do it on my own, you know. This show is about us, not me. Um, loved your company. Go and have a great day. Go and uh, great, great seven days. Go and smash it. Uh, three easy goals and preparation and follow your gut. Lots of love and bye for now. <laughs>